Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jacob Rodriguez. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Resurrection. And believe it or not, we are already in the month of November. Uh, it doesn't feel like it outside, but certainly uh, the leaves tell us, and our calendars tell us, and having got here probably a little bit too early, our watches have told us that it's probably that first Sunday in November. Now, if you're new to Res, uh, you'll find out soon that we love the church calendar here. It orients our hearts to God's story of creation, moving all the way to redemption and restoration. Now, in the church calendar now, we're only a few weeks away from Advent. Advent is that season that leads up to the feast of Christmas. It's a season of waiting. As a church community, we want to position our hearts into that posture of waiting. So we're going to take a few weeks leading up to Advent and then Advent leading up to Easter to dive into the Old Testament prophets who waited for the coming of the Messiah. We're going to go to the prophet Micah. In your Bibles, turn to page 660. Take a mark of the beast, minus 6. 660, and we're going to be in Micah chapter 2. Before we start, let's ask God for his help. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and active, that judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We thank you even for the way that it does surgery on us, perhaps even feeling like it's wounding us, but wounding us to heal us, so that we can take that healing message to the broken world around us. So I ask for your spirit to take this word of God and to apply it to our hearts in that way. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now we've just finished the series going through the story of Abraham, moving from chapter 12 to chapter 22 of the first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis. We've followed Abraham in his 25 years of waiting before Isaac was born, the son of promise, he had to wait and hold on to God's promise. And even at the end of Abraham's life, he did not see the fullness of that promise yet. Abraham and his family did not, did not inhabit the fullness of the land that was promised to them. They were only a small family in number. They were nowhere near the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And so Abraham died, still waiting to see the day when all of God's promises would come true. Um, fast forward approximately 1,100 years to the time of the prophet Micah, and the people of Israel are similarly in a place of waiting. They were struggling to believe God's promises, promises given long ago but partially fulfilled and yet waiting for their consummation. And Micah offers a sharp warning and a rebuke for Israel in the way that they are waiting. He rebukes them for their unfaithfulness, some bad news, but he offers them a word of hope as they wait, some good news. Bad news and good news, judgment and salvation, these two things regularly preached throughout the prophets leading up to our Lord Jesus Christ, who brought the judgment and salvation of God together at the cross. Now Micah, in this message of prophecy, bringing this good news and bad news to Israel, 
speaks of the profound love of God. A love that burns in God's heart and moves him to act for the sake of his people. The whole prophecy of Micah ends, chapter 7, verse 20, with these words. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. This love of God gives generously to his people. God's love gives. It gives salvation, restoration. It gives mercy. And today we're going to see a little bit harder hitting of a message that God's love gives justice. God's love gives justice. Now let me tell you a story about injustice. There once was a baseball team. <laughs> there once was a baseball team that never won a World Series. And rather than getting better, they decided there must be a way to cheat our way to a World Series. <laughs> Apologize to all the Texans. My consensus is worth a time, so I think I can mock the city for the city of uh, the place, the state of Texas. So, this baseball team figured out a way to cheat so cleverly that they could win a World Series without being caught. And they knew that if they were caught eventually, two years later, that their banners, <laughs> their banners would not come down. They could still claim it as a World Series. And even when they won, perhaps, fair and square, five, six years later, they could still claim that they had two World Series wins. Injustice, my friends. <laughs> Let me tell you another story about injustice, one that really should not cause any laughter. It's a story of a people that lived under the injustice of a foreign land and were set free by their God. This God set them free and brought them to this high mountain where he revealed himself in cloud and in glory and gave them a perfect law. He promised them an inheritance that he had promised to their great-great-great-great-grandfather, a land and a blessing. And he gave them in that law these rules and stipulations within which they could protect that inheritance and the justice therein and the proper working out of the freedom that they had been given by their God. And whenever you get more than two or three people in a room or in a society, there will always be a move toward taking away from the vulnerable and giving it to the powerful. And God knew that. Their God knew that. So he instituted these laws that every 50 years the land would return to those to whom it had originally been given to their heirs. God instituted for this people the law that would protect justice because he was a God of justice. Now this people, when they moved into their lands, they prospered and prospered and even had a king, but they forgot their God. And in forgetting their God, they committed grave injustices, so much so that it split the kingdom in two to a northern and a southern kingdom. And their God sent them messengers again and again to turn them away from their injustice, to advocate the cause of the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable, and to remind them that their God was there with them and calling them to the way of justice, 
for which she had saved them in the first place. And here we are in the middle of that story, about 750 years before Christ, in the middle of this struggle where we see the rich and we see the powerful in the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, taking away the land that had been given to others and claiming it for their own and finding as many loopholes in the law to justify their injustice. And we hear the voice of God calling his people to account and bringing a just indictment on them for their works of wickedness. Micah chapters 1 and 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. They can't help but think about it. And they're, and they're rising and then they're lying down. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. Verses 1 through 5 give us this divine indictment from God himself to the unjust, rich landowners of Judah for the way that they counted fields and seized them, houses and took them away. They oppressed a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And that word inheritance in verse 2 shows us that this land wasn't theirs in the first place. It was given to them by God, and they were entrusted with it as stewards to use it to glorify their God and to bring justice and peace to that land forever and ever. That was the whole purpose of the law that was given to them. Now look at the punishment that God promises to give to them for this wickedness in verse 5. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. He's basically telling them, you think you're my people? If you continue in this way, you will not be my people. There will not be a place for you in my assembly. There will be a day, Jesus will later call it the sheep and the goats. There will be a day when he would divide and say, this is my righteous remnant who are living according to my law and being the people I call them to be. And these are the unrighteous wicked who are oppressing and are disobeying my law and are not carrying my name properly to the nations around them. It's a startling word for the people of God in the Old Testament. Now this startling word was rejected by false prophets. People who gave them the words, gave the rich and the powerful the words they wanted to hear. Have you ever done this? Gone on Google and, and typed in a question and didn't get the answer that you wanted and say, oh, I want to find a different expert for that answer. <laughs> who is the greatest basketball player of all time? <laughs> LeBron James, no, no, no. Michael Jordan, no, 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 okay. If I find this statistic here that shows the number of shots that were scored in the last five seconds of the game, and multiply that by 100, divide it by this algorithm, whatever, I'll find a way to make sure that the oh, is the best of all time. <laughs> you, know, you can find the experts to tell you what you want them to tell you, whatever the topic of the field that you're interested in. And if what you're interested in is whether you can continue and disobey the law of God, I promise you, you can find experts to tell you that. And this is what the people of Israel, the rich landowners of Judah, were doing. Look at what their false prophets tell them in verse 6. 
Do not preach thus these false prophets of preaching. One should not preach of such things. We're in verse 6 again. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has God grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? So they're remembering some promises of God that are true. But they're trying to apply them in their context when they're blatantly disobeying the law of God and rebelling against his way of justice and righteousness. And so God, through the words of Micah, preaches to those false prophets and refutes them, verses 8 and following. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. The prophet uh, Micah here, speaking on behalf of God, specifically highlights the most vulnerable in ancient societies, even in the society of Israel, knowing that if the, 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 the male patriarch of the family died, the, the wife and the children that remain would be exceptionally vulnerable, open to all kinds of abuses. And if it weren't for those around them, the family networks obeying the laws of God, they would be preyed upon by the rich and the powerful. And this is exactly what was happening in Judah of that time. And so, very sadly, we see in verse 10 the final statement about what the people of Judah had Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Rest, the rest that was, that was celebrated at the end of creation on the seventh day. The rest that was celebrated when the people came out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and rested at Mount Sinai and God's glory rested on the mountain. The rest that Solomon proclaimed to the people of Israel when they had finally built the temple and the glory came down again. And all of Israel was gathered worshiping the one true God and God's glory rested there. Not so in the days of Micah. It was not a place for rest. Because injustice and unrighteousness and wickedness ruled the day. So is there any hope for this people? Look at verse 12 and 13. Remember the prophets give us the bad news and the good news. The judgment of God, but also the salvation through his promise. Verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnants of Israel and set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. There will be a shepherd king coming who's going to assemble Israel, the remnants of Israel, those who he will purify, those who he will bring back from exile after their time of punishment has ended, whom God will call his people that will never, ever cease to be his people. And even those who are not his people being made his people. The one to, for whom he will be their God and they would be his people forever and ever, world without end. 
And what's he going to do with his people in verse 13? He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Some future shepherd king is going to somehow deal with the injustice of his people, is going to somehow call his true people together and bring them forth through the gates of the city to battle, out the gates into the world. Now, I try to allow myself only one Lord of the Rings analogy per year, but we're so close to January, I'm use my next year's one today. <laughs> so, minus Tirith, after the Battle of the Color Fields, Aragorn on his course. Um, he's already shown himself, in part, to be the true king by his hands of healing, rather than simply by his hands of warfare. In fact, it's his hands of healing that show him as the true king, rather than the sword that he wields. And he, he, he leads the procession out of Minas Tirith back into the Pelennor fields, and he's flanked by uh, the sons of, of Elrond, uh, Elrhir, and uh, Imrahil. Sorry, that's wrong. All of your Lord of the Rings are going to chastise me everywhere. <laughs> all of these names are how to pronounce Aramar, Varagrain, you name it, and the fellowship all around him. He's leading them out because they're going off to warfare. He's come as the king. He's gathered the true people who represent the cause of good and true and beautiful. And he's leading them to the black gate. What a victorious march it would indeed be. Now our king, our shepherd king, has come. And he has come and shown himself as the true righteous one. And his kingship has been revealed not by warfare, not by the swing of the sword, but by his own death and resurrection. And he led his apostles out of the gates of Jerusalem in victory to proclaim judgment and salvation to the nations in a ministry of healing and righteousness and, in short, the gospel to the ends of the earth. Armed with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, a sword that with which they would, they, would, they would wield healing and salvation to the nations. This is the shepherd king predicted. In chapter 4, verse 2 of Micah, it says, it predicts that out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The early church used this prophecy as, their, uh, as the, the power behind their mission to say, God himself has prophesied that our mission cannot fail. Our Lord, our King, our Shepherd himself has led the way out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we as his people who have been justified by faith, who though we were unjust, that we perpetrated all kinds of wickedness, have been made right with God. And we are the ones that when Christ plants his kingdom on earth through us, we are the ones that will show the world what justice, righteousness, and mercy looks like. Amen? We will be the people, the people that God has chosen to show what it looks like to walk justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. So brothers and sisters, let's see what happens when we apply this word as surgery to our own hearts. 
me ask you a few questions that every one of these questions I'm asking, I'm asking of myself as well. In light of the inheritance that God has given us in the new creation, in light of how that is fulfilled in what Christ has done for us, and what we saw in what Israel was required to do with their inheritance, what are we required to do with our inheritance? Ask this question with that in mind. What is the end goal of your economics now? Is it to love God and love your neighbor? Now, I'm no expert in economics, but Scripture is saying something to us, to God's people when they have land. Is the end goal of your economics to make as much money as possible and to secure the most comfortable life in it? If your actions to gain wealth directly cause the poverty of another through unjust practices, would you, like Zacchaeus, Show the Lord your true repentance by saying, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Or perhaps you have a clear conscience before God on how you acquired your wealth. Good. What if you took a moment and reminded yourself that you have nothing that hasn't been given to you by God? And you will be answerable to him for how you stewarded every last penny of it. Let's look at the example of our own church building. We acquired it because of the sacrificial, generous giving of members like you. And we bought it with the desire of preserving the gospel witness of this building for generations to come. Especially since our city is literally becoming secularized in its architecture. Old buildings are, are being bought up by developers and transformed into housing available only to the wealthy. So we came into this building with a sense of gospel mission. Let's buy it and use it for gospel mission. And long may that vision last. But we also came into this building knowing that it housed a Christ-centered gospel preaching worship of African-American communities since 1882. That it was Christ and the message of his kingdom preached and embodied in this building. That was what had won the freedom for our African-American brothers and sisters. And they knew they were stewards of the soil beneath their feet. And so they built, and they built slowly but surely, low in resources but great and rich in faith. That one day a building would stand here to house the praises of the Lord who had set them free. Brothers and sisters, as we have now inherited this building, it is our responsibility to tell this story for as many years as we steward this building and the soil beneath it. Let Capitol Hill never forget the legacy of this building that came long before us. Amen? But our responsibility is not only to tell these stories and to memorialize them. We're also called to use our wealth and the ownership of this building to care for the poor and the vulnerable in our midst. Now, one practical way we're going to do this, you may have heard about it if you were here at the One Another Gathering on Wednesday, is that beginning next year, we're going to launch a team that will take freshly cooked food to the homeless who stay within walking distance of our church. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that wrong, so we're going to get some good training to know how to do this in a way that actually uh, blesses our neighbors and... Uh, is a way that respects them in all of their contexts and does good rather than harm, even inadvertently. 
This initiative will be spearheaded by our cross-cultural justice mission, CCJM. So stay tuned. And this is just one of several ways that we're trying to think creatively on how to use this inheritance, use this wealth to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Now that's us as a church and us as stewards of the building. Now many in our church have moved into neighborhoods while the proper property market was hot. Saved up money that you worked hard for, and you purchased a house in a neighborhood that is demographically shifting. How might the Lord be calling you to steward that land that you have given? As a church, we recognize this as a responsibility and as an opportunity. And so we're also in CCJM launching something that we're tentatively calling the Love Your Neighbor Initiative. We want all of y'all in all of your neighborhoods, however you have come to them, to learn about the soil, about the neighborhood, about the histories of your neighbors or those who live in your houses before you. And we want to get a deep, deep knowledge of our city and all the stories of injustice that have come before us so that we can know better how to love our neighbors today and prepare our children for a future in which they can continue that same love of God and love for neighbor. Let's go another step. What's the end goal of your politics? Remembering the responsibility that was given to the people of God when they had an inheritance and knowing our inheritance in the new creation and our sojourning here on earth and the here and now. What's the end goal of our politics? Is it to love God and love neighbor? Many Americans on both sides of the political aisle might say something like freedom. But freedom to what end? Freedom to extort the poor. Freedom to dispossess people from their land. Freedom to terminate the viable life of another. Freedom to terminate your own life. Now if I rustle feathers on both sides of the aisle, then I think the word of God has done its job. So much more if I rustle my own feathers and I know the word of God has done its job. When we see the mission that we've been given like the people of God in the Old Testament, the heirs of Abraham's promise, and when we see the responsibility that we have because of the resources God has given to us in the here and now, and when we see the inheritance that has been promised us in the new creation, a world that will be governed by righteousness and peace as God has defined it, then we must interrogate every bit of our economics and politics and ask if our own goal is to love God and love neighbor and brothers and sisters, however you vote on Tuesday, you will be responsible. You will be, I will be responsible to live in the way that loves God and loves neighbor. Whose team do we want to be on? The only way we should answer that question is the team of our King Jesus, our Shepherd King, who has shown us through the power of his weakness on the cross and has shown us justice satisfied and shown us through his resurrection justice and righteousness embodied and has given us the message of his kingdom and his gospel to proclaim and embody to the ends of the earth. Whatever your context, 
whatever your background, whatever your calling from Monday to Saturday of this week, may the Lord help us all in this task. In the name of the Father and of the Son, 